0: You are listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, Plain talk about intellectual property. Please welcome your host, Leticia Caminero. Hello from Washington, D.C. This is episode 10. On this episode, we have two guests to talk about plant variety and seed certification. They are two research fellows in the ARC Industrial Transformation Training Center for Uniquely Australian Foods and members of the ARC Laureate Project Harnessing the Potential of Intellectual Property to Build Food Security at the School of Law, the University of Queensland, Australia.
1: I'm David Jefferson, and uh, I am a research fellow with the Harnessing Intellectual Property to Build Food Security Laureate Project at the University of Queensland School of Law. My background is as a lawyer and a legal scholar, and my research focuses on issues of intellectual property for plants, as well as biodiversity, conservation, uh, and indigenous rights. And I'll pass it to my colleague, Kamalesh, to introduce himself. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, David. And
2: thanks, Legisia, as well, for inviting us to do this interview for your podcast. So my name is Kamalesh Adhikari. I'm originally from Nepal, which is a very beautiful, mountainous country. I have worked so far on intellectual property, seed, and plant variety protection issues, focusing on several Asia-Pacific countries, including Bangladesh, India, Malaysia, Nepal, Sri Lanka, and Thailand. Currently, I'm a resource fellow at the School of Law in the University of Queensland, and I'm also working in the project that David talked about, Harnessing Intellectual Property to Build Food Security as a large project, as well as there is another project called Uniquely Australian Foods, and my research interests lie in the area of intellectual property, food security, agriculture, particularly focusing on access to biodiversity, benefit sharing, and the rights of local
1: indigenous and farming communities. Fantastic, and we should Probably just mentioned um, that part of the reason I think uh, Leticia that you found us for this podcast was uh, that Kamalish and I uh, together co-edited a book in 2019, which is on intellectual property and plant protection focused on Asia. And there are several chapters uh, that engage with these issues in that context. And so it's something that we have been working on here for a number of years.
0: Precisely, I found you through your book, Intellectual Property Law and Plant Protection, Challenges and Developments in Asia. And following the thought of plant protection, can you tell us
1: what is a plant variety? The first point that I'd like to make uh, in defining the concept of plant variety is that this is primarily a legal construct Uh, this idea of plant variety. And it's something that was formalized in a treaty called the International Convention for the Protection of New Varieties of Plants, which is often known as UPOV, that's U-P-O-V, which is its acronym in French. And uh, UPOV was a treaty that was first signed in 1962, but since then it's undergone several revisions the most significant of which occurred in 1978 and 1991. And those are the two versions of the convention that are still active today. And there are some important differences between the uh, those two versions of the UPOV convention that I won't really get into now because they're fairly technical. Uh, but it is important to know that there are these two different versions that some different countries adhere to. Uh, UPOV has 76 members currently. Those are mostly individual countries, but it also includes uh, two regional organizations, uh, one of which is the European Union, another of which is the African Intellectual Property Organization. Uh, and so the UPOV convention really formalizes this concept of the plant variety. And uh, so in order to be recognized, in order for something to be recognized a plant variety, it has to meet the requirements for plant breeders' rights protection under UPOV. And there are four requirements primarily, which are novelty, distinctness, uniformity, and stability. And so I'll just briefly talk about what each of those are. Uh, So first of all, novelty means that the variety must be new. This can't be a plant variety that uh, has been... Now, novelty in the UPOV sense, by the way, is commercial novelty, Uh, So it's concerned with whether or not the variety has been um, sold or is of common knowledge for a certain period of time in the country in which it's protected. So it has to be new. Second, it has to be distinct, meaning that it has to be different in uh, at least some of its characteristics from uh, varieties that exist already. The third and fourth criteria are uniformity and stability, and they they sort of go together. Uh, they both are concerned with the genetic... Uh, homogeneity of a variety essentially, and its ability to be reproduced consistently over time. So uniformity means that uh, when you grow out multiple different individual plants of this variety, they all present with the same essential traits. So if, if they are all meant to be 30 centimeters tall, you don't have some that are 10 centimeters tall and some that are 50 centimeters tall, they're all essentially around 30 centimeters tall. Uh, stability means that it's the variety's essential characteristics or traits are passed on from one generation to another. That means it breeds true, right? So it's something uh, that uh, doesn't change over time and evolve into to be something else. Uh, so, without meeting those four requirements, something is not considered to be a plant variety. And that means that the this concept really needs to be distinguished from two other concepts that are similar but are much broader than the legal notion of the plant variety. And the first of those is just the, the taxonomic rank of variety, which uh, is a level of classification In the taxonomic scale, that is below species and subspecies, but it is above form. So this is a a particular botanical classification. Uh, It's scientific in nature, um, but it is broader than the idea of plant variety that is able to be protected by intellectual property. Uh, And the other concept that should be distinguished from the UPOV plant variety concept is cultivar which essentially refers to an assemblage of plants that are selected for desirable characteristics that are maintained during propagation. So that being said, you could say that uh, most, or probably all UPOV plant varieties are cultivars, um, but not all cultivars are UPOV plant varieties. So essentially the, the UPOV concept is much narrower than the scientific classifications of variety and cultivar because it only includes plants that meet the criteria that I mentioned earlier for intellectual property protection. Just to give an example of what a plant variety might be, uh, one common one that a lot of people would probably know is the Honeycrisp apple. Uh, The Ambrosia apple is another one, but it's also important to mention here that a lot of plants that are officially or formally recognized as plant varieties under plant breeders' rights laws are not in fact uh, known by their plant variety name. They're often known by a more common name, um, maybe a botanical name or a trademark name or the cultivar name. So there are many many of the most popular plant varieties uh, that are protected by intellectual property in a particular country. Uh, might be relatively unknown uh, as, as to what their what their plant variety name would be. And the final thing I'll say about um, in response to the question of what is a plant variety is that since the UPOV convention was adopted uh, in 1962, as I've mentioned, uh, there are now 76 members so this form of intellectual property known as plant breeders rights has been expanding around the world and there are a number of countries that have adopted, national level laws that essentially replicate the UPOV model for plant breeders rights, whether or not they are members of UPOV. And uh, sometimes these national laws have elements that are different from the UPOV model, Um, but generally speaking, they all recognize this concept of the plant variety, as I've discussed.
0: Related to plant variety, we also find seed certification. What is the certification, and why is different from a plant variety?
2: The first is to understand it in a te- technical context. And in that technical context, seed certification is often a step in a process to obtain government permits and approvals for the development, quality maintenance, branding, leveling, sale, and marketing of the seed of different uh, plant varieties. So basically, it's more about certifying seeds for all these purposes of you know quality maintenance, branding, and sale. In a legal sense... Seed certification is a law to regulate the trends and practices of seed development, branding, sale, and marketing, including the maintenance of seed quality. And interestingly, seeds that meet the requirements of seed certification laws are often known and sold as certified seeds mm-hmm. are improved. Seats and the, another interesting aspect of seed certification is that seed certification laws are often introduced in the form of national seed acts and regulations, and in some cases also they are um, they are a key feature of national seed policies of many countries. Examples include the national seed acts and regulations of countries such as India and Nepal. Like, uh, for instance, India introduced its national seed act in the 1960s, whereas Nepal in the 1980s, and, and there are many others who introduced around the same time or even before. Um, because this country is introduced. There are four key features of these seed certification laws. The first is that the seed certification laws facilitate public and private seed entities to breed and develop plant varieties, and to eventually play a key role in the production, multiplication, maintenance, and supply of quality seeds. Second, seed certification laws also create condition environments for the import and export of quality seeds. It means that the seed certification laws do not just focus on plant variety development or breeding at the local level or at the national level, but they also tend to uh, deal with regulatory aspects of the import and export of quality seeds or plant varieties. You know, different types of plant varieties, crops. Third, seed certification laws rarely recognize or contain provisions to grant exclusive plant breeders mm-hmm. rights, as David talked about in relation to uh, UPO. However, they often deal with technical standards that stakeholders, for instance, mm-hmm. the producers or breeders must meet to breed and develop plant varieties and to sell, export, or import seeds. For example, according to most seed laws, seeds and plant varieties must meet the requirements of distinctness, uniformity, and stability, about which David earlier already explained. And then the fourth key feature of the seed certificate is that seed certification laws is that they rarely deal with the seeds that farmers and indigenous communities produce, reproduce, exchange and sell within customary or farmer seed systems. In other words, seed certification laws, in many instances, it is often the case that plant variety protection laws do not deal with, directly regulate or deal with uh, protections for local, native or indigenous plant varieties that farmers uh, use or exchange within customary and you know their own local seed systems and that brings me to another important question what is the fundamental you know distinction between plant variety production and seed certification systems so i would say that seed laws have two important goals the first is that they focus on plant variety development and breeding second they focus on the production multiplication sale marketing export and import of quality seeds in contrast Plant variety protection laws are more about granting or providing protection to plant variety, uh, new plant varieties, or even to grant plant business rights over those newly developed plant varieties. So, in many ways, they complement each other in terms of how the seeds of new plant varieties can be produced, reproduced and sold in a market. But in, in some ways they all they are also different in the sense that they do not necessarily deal with the same sets of rights in their laws um, for plant varieties or seed entrepreneurs or producers. So I think I think David, we should now now want to discuss the benefits and challenges of these protections.
1: Fantastic. So thank you, Kamalash. It's a great explanation of seed certification and its various nuances.
0: What are the benefits of plant protection, and what are the challenges for this kind of protection?
1: Um, so with regard to some of the benefits of legal protections, what I'd like to do here is speak to. Uh, legal protections as conceived under these two different realms or uh, two different types of legal regimes, one being intellectual property laws, mostly plant breeder's rights laws, uh, and the other being seed certification laws that Kamalash just spoke to. And um, now, I'd also like to add the caveat that Uh, What I'm going to talk about is benefits are often assumed to be benefits and not necessarily proven to be benefits empirically. That's another question. Uh, There is some research out there about whether uh, these types of legal regimes really accomplish what kind of goals and aims they, they establish, uh, but it is a, a question to be investigated empirically. So, what I'm going to give you now is some of the sort of conceptual assumptions, and then we can critique them, uh, and Kamalush will really go through and do that through discussing some of the challenges. So, first of all, uh, from the plant breeder's perspective, and the breeder is uh, most likely uh, in contemporary times a scientist working at a research institution or at a company, uh, mostly uh, large multinational companies now um, because of industry consolidation. Uh, So, from the breeder's perspective, the main benefit of intellectual property for a new plant variety is to obtain a set of exclusive commercial exploitation rights in a particular geography for a limited period of time so I'll break down each of those components uh, into it's into their constituent elements so first of all the what are the exclusive exploitation rights uh, these are a series of, actions that the plant breeder uh, that obtains the plant breeder's right is able to prohibit other people from doing. Uh, and the, those actions include production, reproduction, sale, marketing, importing and exporting of the variety. So that means that if you are someone who is not the plant breeder or the person named on the plant breeder's right certificate, you need to obtain authorization from the plant breeder in order to do any of those things. However, like other types of intellectual property laws, these plant breeders' rights regimes are limited to particular geographies. And that means that they are national in scope. So if I, for example, have a plant breeders' right here in Australia for the Honeycrisp apple that I talked about earlier, but I don't have protection for it in the United States, then you can sell the Honeycrisp apple in the United States. You can import it there. Um, you can reproduce it there and you don't need my authorization if it's not protected there. Uh, And then the third part is for a limited period of time. This will depend uh, on the national law in a given country, but usually plant breeders rights protection or plant variety protection as it's termed sometimes in countries that are not members of UPOV, uh, typically lasts for a period of between 15 and 25 years. Depending on the jurisdiction and the type of plant, usually uh, trees have a longer period of protection because they need more time um, to develop and also they need more time before bearing fruit. So that's from the perspective of the the plant breeder, and there are some benefits there. More generally, there is an economic argument in favor of intellectual property for plants, um, which is that these forms of exclusive economic rights incentivize innovation in plant breeding. And so that is very similar to other arguments in favor of intellectual property regimes. For example, for patents, people say that, well, patents, if you have this opportunity to obtain exclusive rights to your invention, then it gives you an incentive to invent in the first place, because if someone else could just copy your invention, uh, then they could freeload on your intellectual labor. So that's a similar argument here for plant breeding. And plant breeding today is often a a highly technical and uh, heavily scientific process that involves a lot of institutional capital to be able to accomplish so. Uh, That is often an argument that you would hear from people who are in favor of intellectual property for plants. The other part of that is that these regimes are meant to provide benefits to consumers in the sense that uh, if you have this incentive to continue to improve or develop improved plant varieties, then that means that if you're a farmer, uh, you should be able to have access to improved germplasm or improved planting material uh, for these protected varieties of plants. Now, this assumes that Uh, that farmers are looking for the kinds of varieties that are protected by intellectual property. And as I mentioned earlier, the concept of plant variety is narrow under UPOV, and it it has to be new, distinct, uniform, and stable. So in many parts of the world, farmers may not want to plant those kinds of varieties, but uh, they do have certain advantages, especially for industrial agriculture. And one of those advantages is uh, if you have this system in which you tend to have a fewer number of varieties planted uh, that are of a particular quality, then the resulting produce is usually more uniform. And for a world that has globalized agricultural and food supply chains that relies on large-scale production, that kind of uniformity is really important. The final benefit that I'll talk about is in relation to seed certification, not necessarily intellectual property per se. And the main benefit here is to ensure that all seeds sold in a particular uh, geography where the seed certification regime applies are of a consistent quality and also that their origin and identity are not misrepresented. So, in other words, uh, you want seeds that are uh, unadulterated, that uh, are not contaminated, for example, by pests or other impurities. And you also want to ensure that growers who purchase the seed that's labeled in a particular way as a particular uh, variety or a particular cultivar, you want to know that it is what it says it is. Uh, that it should germinate as expected, that if you follow uh, all of the, the standard practices for growing it out, that it should perform as you expect. So those are some of the main benefits that uh, people discuss in relation to these types of legal protections. And I'll now pass it to Kamalash to talk about the challenges. Uh,
2: Thank you, David. That is a very, very good overview of the benefits of um, plant variety protection and at the same time seed certification. I agree with you in the sense that um, these benefits are not automatic. But in the case of challenges, unfortunately, I think these challenges are quite real and already being felt by many countries and many communities around those com- uh, countries, including farmers and indigenous communities. I'll talk about those aspects in a while. So basically, there are three types of challenges, I think, from these types of protections. The first sets of challenges are the challenges at the global level. So, for instance, there are claims that already due to plant variety protections and seed certification systems that are often only enjoyed by private seed entities and um, traders or multinational companies, there are claims that there is corporate control over global seed supply and use. Uh, for example, some of the statistics suggest that you know only 6 or 7 multinational seed companies now control more than 60% of the commercial seed market 70% of agrochemicals, chemicals and 100% of transgenic that is genetically modified seeds you know so so I think that is a key challenge due to the protections that have been granted for new plant varieties uh, either through plant variety protection laws or in some ways through seed certification systems but these challenges are not only at the local level there are also two other Challenges mm. that I would like to talk about, and the the first of these challenges are at the national level. You know, for instance, in many countries, due to both global co- corporate control or due to plant breed protections and seed certification systems, there is increased dominance of private seed traders and businesses in national seed market. As a result of that, there has been reduced role for public seed entities to you know to to produce, or breed, mm, and reproduce, multiply, and sell seeds. One of the major consequences of these types of trends is that um, in many situations, privacy traders or businesses do not focus on the development or building of crops that are important for local farms or local growing conditions. And they rather focus more on what is commercially viable, what can be externally sourced to farmers, you know, so, and, and I think that really creates a kind of a problematic situation where, uh, public seed entities, even if they want to focus on crops that are important for local food and seed security situations, they may not get that role due to, due to these seed plant-based protections and seed certification systems, which work more in favor of, uh, multinational companies or private seed businesses. And finally, I think these challenges are also associated with how all of these together work at the local level. I would argue that because of seed certification laws and because of plant-based protection laws, there is often non-participation of local farmers and indigenous communities in uh, national seed systems or even in global seed systems. And there are so many technical and legal reasons for that. I, I would just, of these of these reasons, I would just highlight two, two major um, issues. The first is that, and farmers and indigenous communities often find it difficult to get protections for their local native and indigenous varieties under plant variety protection and seed certification laws. And we already talked about the standards that these laws, you know, introduce for any plant variety to be protected or to be registered for for commercial sale or export or import. You know, and I think I think that is a key issue. Um, and in many cases, local farmers and indigenous communities do not get sufficient resources to breed their varieties or to develop their varieties and meet the requirements of for instance novelty, uniformity, stability and distinctness. You know? So I, I think this is this is a key concern. Um I think at the same time, there is another concern that is also quite important to highlight, and that is this: these laws, both plant variety protection and seed certification laws, do not often recognize that farmers and indigenous communities should be rewarded for providing crops and seeds for plant breeding and commercialization by private and other seed entities, you know. And that is, I think, an important global concern as well. Which, and, and these concerns, to some extent, have been addressed in some of the international, other international laws like yeah. the the Convention on Biological Diversity, the Plan Treaty, and then the Nagaya Protocol on Access to Genetic Resources mm-hmm. and Benefit Sharing. But at the national level, when it comes to the implementation of these, these issues and these concerns through, or when it comes to the question of addressing these concerns through national laws, uh, there are only few examples. Of countries that have done so mm-hmm. and for instance india has taken some some good mm, regulatory initiatives to address the concerns that are associated with access to genetic resources or access to plant varieties and benefit sharing with local and indigenous communities similarly there are countries like uh, thailand and then malaysia which have taken some but 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 as a whole it's still i would say that there exists some kind of problems within global and national seed systems to recognise that that these challenges are real and then that uh, some alternative options or measures need to be identified to address those challenges.
0: On benefits, we can say that a plan by mainly provides exclusivity and seed certification works as a quality certificate in a way. On the other hand, on challenges, Plant protection is better suited for industrial production since local farmers and indigenous community may find taxing to secure plant protection. Any final remarks?
1: So the first point is... Just a a caveat that we've been talking about two specific kinds of legal protections for plants, that is plant breeders' rights or plant variety protection on the one hand, and seed certification regimes on the other. But it's also important to recognize that there are different aspects of uh, intellectual property that also intersect with agriculture in a variety of different ways, uh, including different forms of legal protections for intellectual property. And depending on uh, the the jurisdiction of the country, these can include things like patents. Uh, trademarks, uh, geographical indications of origin, other types of denominations of origin, um, and and other types of regimes. So that's one thing that's important to say. Uh, and the final point that I'll make is, I think we both would like to emphasize that this legal system for uh, legal protection of plants, whether it's by seed certification or intellectual property, is really designed to support a particular kind of agriculture, which is industrial in nature, which is uh, fundamentally a large scale and often depends on globalized supply chains, uh, which is dependent on a particular kind of economic model. And that whilst it may work reasonably well for in, that, in the context of that model, it's not a kind of legal protection that's complete in the sense that it doesn't really accommodate very well other forms of agriculture, whether they are uh, indigenous or ancestral um, customary forms of agriculture um, or other types of of hobby forms of of plant uh, breeding and growing, uh, horticulture in in different forms, other types of small scale organic agriculture is not so well accommodated uh, in these systems, agroecology, for example. So um, I think that it's, it's really important to remember that, uh, that the legal system that we have, uh, as robust as it may be it, for a particular agricultural model, uh, it may not accommodate others. So I think that's all I have to say. Kamalash, um, do you have anything else to add? No, I think, I think it's fine. I think we have
2: covered um, all the... Questions that Leticia wanted us to respond. So I think, I think it has been a very good opportunity for us to, you know, go back to our joint publication and then, Mm. and then bring some new insights for this podcast interview. Uh, I hope that we clarified many of the issues Mm. and concerns associated with intellectual property and seed certification at the same time, plant breed reproduction. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much for your time and for talking about plant protection. I highly recommend their book, which provides a detailed and critical account of the emergence, development and implementation of plant variety protection laws in Asian countries. Look out for the book, Intellectual Property Law and Plant Protection, Challenges and Developments in Asia. And so we come to the end of our episode. See you next Tuesday with a new guest and a new IP topic. Thank you for listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, Plain talk about intellectual property. Did you like what we talked today? Please share with your network. Do you want to learn more about intellectual property? Subscribe now on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website www.intangiblia.com. Copyright Leticia Caminero 2020. All rights reserved. This podcast is provided for information purposes only and should not be considered as legal advice or legal opinion.